0: So, for our Lenten meditations this year, we're going to return to where we left off last year, namely Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the text on the back of the bulletin. Psalm 119, we've done it a couple of years now, is a fitting place to spend Lent because it's a convicting and a challenging, but also a comforting vision of what it looks like to have a passionate, sustained engagement with God and His Word. It is, as we've seen in the past, a reminder, an appointed reminder, that there is no real, mature engagement with the living God apart from a serious listening engagement with His Word. So the the temperature, if you will, of this relationship between the psalmist and God and God's Word, the intensity of that triangle is felt in every stanza of the poem. And so tonight, we start with what's known as the Mem, Mem's the Hebrew letter, the Mem stanza. Uh, that is the stanza that starts with the equivalent, the Hebrew equivalent of our letter M. You might remember, this this poem, Psalm 119, is what's called an acrostic poem. So there's 22 stanzas, one stanza for each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And they go in order, sort of like from A to Z, only there's only 22 letters. All the stanzas have eight lines. And all the lines of any given stanza all start with that letter of the alphabet. So the first stanza has eight lines. They all start with a, a word that starts with a. The second, eight lines. They all have a start with the Hebrew equivalent of b, etc. It's really used as a memorization device in the original language. It constrains the poet quite a bit. Imagine trying to write a poem where, okay, I've got to use, I need eight a words, and then I need eight b words, and eight c words. But it helps to memorize it. If you were listening to it in Hebrew it would sound very, you'd get that crack repetition at the beginning of each line. So we're on the M stanza. It's a unique stanza in that there is not only no trauma here, there's no visible enemies here, um, but it's a prayer or a confession before God where nothing is asked for. The psalmist does not ask God for anything in this stanza, and that's the first such stanza in the poem. He doesn't ask for anything. So I'm going to make three points. They're the title. Uh, love, Learning, and Loyalty. Three things I want us to see in this stanza. So first, love. The psalmist starts off with a word of longing. Oh, It's a full-orbed groan of the heart. It it, it evokes these interior depths. Oh. And it shouldn't be, we shouldn't glide across it too quickly. Oh, how. The second word actually adds to the intensity here. Oh, how. Not, not, I love your law. Not, oh, Lord, I love your law. But this, oh, how I love your law. It's a statement about the authenticity and the fierce character of the love. Oh, how I love your law. We are to be ferociously attached to Holy Scripture. That's the first Lenten lesson for us. And to be ferociously attached to it means to be emotionally attached to it. Not in general, not in theory, but in reality with the actual text or texts. We can say things about it. We can have it a sort of an emotional, uh, visceral reaction to it that we would only say of God. Because we meet God in it and it's God's own speech. God says elsewhere in the Psalms that he exalts his name and his word above all things. Somehow, the word of Holy Scripture participates in or partakes in or is taken up into God's own holiness. So the psalmist can say something like this, which if you said about some other thing, you would be an idolater. He can say, I lift up my hands to your commandments. Or here, he can say, oh, how I love your law. And so Lent is a good time, a pointed reminder for us to be renewed right at this point. There's really no renewal, beloved, without re-engagement. There's no renewal without re-engagement, and there's no renewal without a receptive, repentant reading of Scripture. There's no shortcuts here. There's no renewal without trying to be a person who seeks to naturally repeat, oh, how I love your law. And there's another uh, um, how in the text, in verse 103. How sweet. How sweet are your words to my taste. Lent's an opportunity to restore your spiritual taste buds because they get cloudy. Right? They get jaded. They lack nuance. Do you ever meet a person that has really sophisticated, refined taste? A wine connoisseur or some sort of food foodie? Well, that's how your spiritual taste buds should be. Right. Calvin said, those... For whom the prophetic doctrine is tasteless ought to be thought of as lacking taste buds. Oh, how sweet are your words to my taste. The point is that the love that the psalmist professes here is delightful. It's sweet, sweeter, he says, than honey to my mouth. Now, Ed's back there. He's our resident honey expert. And Ed has often said to me, you know, Kevin, the Bible mentions honey a lot. And he's told me 30 times, in fact, the Bible mentions honey a lot. To which I usually say, I know, Ed. Because, of course, it does. It mentions honey a lot. Psalm 19 echoes what's here in Psalm 119, right? You remember uh, God's commands, David says in Psalm 119, are more precious than gold, even much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, sweeter than the honey from the honeycomb. Even sweeter than Ed's honey, which is quite delicious honey. But there's a sweetness here. Right? And if the word of God can be like that to us, right, then our spiritual taste buds are waking up. We are beginning to walk in the way of this text. If you're a tea drinker, like I am, and you put Ed's honey in your tea, it's really good. And that's how you want the word of God to taste spiritually. So this is a very deep sweetness, a sweet love, because by the word... Right, the second person of the the Trinity, in the Spirit, the third person, we encounter the Father. And thus we have communion with the Holy Trinity. And this is why Jonathan Edwards is always talking about the sweetness of God. This kind of exquisite delight in the triune life. That's what the Word is conducting you to. Now, you know, you tend to think about, right, you tend to be absorbed with the things and the people that you love a lot. And thus, in loving the law, the psalmist continues by saying, I meditate on it all day long. Right? And this is natural. If you, if you are passionate about someone or something and you love it, you're going to meditate on it all day long. I mean, what else would the psalmist want to be engaged with? What else would he clutter his mind with? You meditate on what you love. And if you meditate on what you love, then you've got to get some clutter out. Lent is a time to get some clutter out. And thus all day for the psalmist, all of life becomes a living contemplation. It's an interior reflection on the word of God because this is the highest thing that rational creatures can do. Right? You're a worded creature. You're created in the image of the word, by the word. You're given, you have this capacity for language. We're linguistic creatures. We're speaking creatures. We're spoken to by God. And it is part of the exaltation and the dignity of being human to have God talk to us and address us and for us to engage that address. So that's love. The second point, then, is learning. And here I'm going to focus on verses 98 to 100. Your commands are always with me, the psalmist says. Which is an interesting way to put it, isn't it? I mean, the commands, then, are not just static things on the page. They really don't just sit there in the Bible. As you meditate and memorize, they walk around with you. They are present. They are alive. Are the commands of God with us when we go around? I mean, we think this way. The commands of God are with me. And they can only travel around with you, right, if they're in you, if they're in your intellect, your memory, your imagination, your affections, if they populate your invisible interior life. The commands of God, they walk around with you. And then the psalmist he makes three really short comparisons that flow from his relationship to God's commands. The first one is this. They make me wiser than my enemies. They, they give him, the second one is they give him more insight than his teachers. And the third one is they give him more understanding than the elders. These are remarkable claims. Enemies may be clever. You know, they might have greater resources or greater power or means. But if you, and this is especially for those who are younger, because I'm going to make this point in a minute, but the psalmist is a younger, a, a relatively young person here. I'm, I'm convinced for lots of reasons, but um, one of them is this passage where he's comparing himself to his teachers and his elders. So he's not, a, he's not in the role of teacher or elder. Um, but in any case, if you start with, and you cling to God's word, you can be wiser than enemies. Because right? the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Teachers even. Teachers may be learned. They may be skilled in their field. Right? But true insight into God and into the world and into the permanent things, the things that matter, that comes from the word of God. There's no disrespect meant here. He's not being snide. He's just simply stating that I have enemies that have resources I don't have, and I have teachers Right? But I have more insight than my teachers, because I'm, I'm cleaving, I love the commands this way. Elders may be aged, they may have long life experience, but that doesn't guarantee wisdom. Right? The whole world is full of unwise older people. So a younger person who has meditated on God's law will exceed an elder who has not, in understanding and in insight. And it sounds, like I said, that the psalmist is relatively young because of these comparisons he's making. Of course, all of this is by God's mercy. It's not that he's saying I'm natively smarter than anybody. It's by grace. In this context, where there's learning, right, there's a living teacher. Notice the text says this in verse 102. For you yourself, it's emphatic, you yourself. You yourself have taught me. God himself draws his children into this state of learning and this state of delight. And this seems to be an instance of what we read in the gospel where Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. We might paraphrase, you've hidden these things from my enemies and my teachers and my elders. And you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So we all start as learners in this school of Scripture. We start as babes. We start as little children in the sense of trusting and pliable and receptive and open, innocently embracing what God says to be true in his word. That's what we're all called to do, regardless of age. Of course, we do move on to maturity, The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says this, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. It's wonderful to be childlike if by that we mean receptive, open, trusting, pliable, embracing, right? But we are not to think like children. Paul says, stop thinking like children. And he goes on and says, in regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults or be men, depending on your translation. And we saw the same thing from the Hebrews 5 reading, right? Where where the writer says to the Hebrew Christians, look, by this time you should be teaching. You shouldn't need to go back to milk. So this is a situation where a very young person can start with the word of God, start with a kind of childlike receptivity and innocence. God wants to reveal these things not to the wise and learned, but to babes and to children. And then you mature up into thinking like an adult. So wisdom, insight, understanding, in short, learning, pious learning, to use an older term, the study of divinity, the study of the divine being, This learning, it flows from our first point, it flows from love and delight. And then it feeds back to nourish love and delight. Right, there's no place to start on this, it's kind of a circle, right? Love creates learning, learning kindles love. It's a glorious circle. And where you get that spark, and you get that love, you will get a student who can excel. It's one of the great frustrations of teaching is that you can't chaperone that mysterious thing that gives the student a passion for the object being studied. But where you get a student that has that thirst, you've got something very special. And we're all called to cultivate it, right? So it's, it's, it's learning, love and delight, more learning, more love and delight, a glorious circle. And then finally, Since high theology is highly practical, love and learning produce loyalty. So here I'm going to look a little bit at the ethical implications, what this looks like. Look at verse 101. The psalmist says, I've kept my feet from every evil path so that, I love those two words, so that I might obey your word. Now here we're going to get to something very Lenten in spirit. There's an unavoidable price, a restraint, a struggle. It's a negation. It's a no. It's a no. It's a renunciation that is just there in being Christian in biblical ethics. I have kept my feet from every evil path. That's the no. That's the renunciation. That's the sharp edge that we use the Lenten season to remind us of because sometimes we get a little fuzzy and blurry and blunted about this. I have kept my feet from every evil path. That's the no. So that, he says, and here's the yes, the affirmation, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws. The no enables the yes. Right? The no enables the yes. The cross enables the resurrection. Mortifying sin enables quickening. We put aside or we put off the old man so we can put on the new man. And the two acts always belong together. They can never be separated. This is just basic Christian sanctity and life. Loyalty is saying no in order to say yes. Yes renouncing to affirm, departing from every evil path so that we do not depart from God's word. This is the result of our learning, of our being students of the sacred page. Learning produces this loyalty, this covenant loyalty, or else it's fraudulent. Love and learning do no good (laughs) unless they produce this loyalty. So look at verse 104. I get understanding from your precepts. There's the learning, right? There's the learning. I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. There's the renunciation and the loyalty. So let me put this in a slightly different way. The sweetness or the honey of God's precepts, creates in us, or should create in us, an attraction to the good. Our wills are naturally made to be inclined toward the good, toward the beautiful. And that same sweetness should create a revulsion, a hatred of every wrong or evil path. So this love then, this sweetness, it's the reason for both the yes and the no that loyalty requires. Loyalty is hatred for evil and love of God simultaneously. That's what loyalty is. That's what covenant fidelity is. Hatred for evil and love of God simultaneously. So we have three things here, if you can take another geometric analogy. Um, We have love, learning, and loyalty, and they're like an equilateral triangle. You need all three of them or you don't have the proper shape of Christian existence, of the Christian life. Right? And, and any one side depends on and always touches the other two. And no side really has priority, right? You, you, you could start anywhere on the triangle and say there must be love for God, right? That love must create learning, and that learning and love must create loyalty. But you could start with loyalty and say, well, if I'm going to be loyal, I'm going to love God, and I'm going to, you know, learn about God. So you need these three things together, and this stanza then becomes a beautiful stanza to start the Lenten season with. For we always need just this trifecta, love of God and his sweet word, learning, insight, understanding in the light of that word, and loyalty, loyalty which renounces in order to affirm, which says no in order to say yes. Yes to the God who himself has taught us. Yes to the God who has embodied, who has embodied, who has fleshed out love, learning, and loyalty in the incarnate Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. Amen.